0: good midday to you if you don't have the sheets that are in that back table you have a 30 second break to get your sheets we do not expect you to be done eating um but do take 30 seconds to make sure you have the sheets with green a green banner at the top that says growing together in the grace of prayer All right. Hey, Caroline, are you going to use this later? I'm going to hand it to you so I don't walk off with it. Thank you. All right. Um, Please continue eating, but I'm going to dive in and start our first lesson. And you've got three pages there printed out for you which means I'm going to move kind of fast. But here's what I want to do as far as setting expectations. In this five-week study on prayer, I'm going to teach the most today. Next time we meet, I'm teaching again and way, way less, and you're going to spend more time at your table praying. And then each successive week after that, there'll be less teaching, more praying. And for the practically minded, it's going to get very practical at the end. But we're not starting there. Today, I want to talk about the heart of prayer and the gospel of prayer, all right? Yeah. So it's on one, in one sense, today, I'm not going to say anything about your prayer list or anything like that or any, any tactics or strategies for your prayer life. That, that's not what today is about, though we'll get there uh, by the end of this five-week uh, study. Today... I want to talk about the heart of prayer, and I want to use three different places in Scripture and help you see that in Christ Jesus, we have perfect access to God, and our prayer life is about using that access by faith. And I want you to agree with me that God not only has given us free and open and even confident access to come into his presence. He's gone out of his way to tell us this and show us this over and over and over again. So today we're going to look at the beginning and the end of Luke's gospel. Then we're going to look at two passages from Hebrews 4. Then we're going to look at kind of a long passage from Ephesians 2 and 3. And all three of them are are designed by God... For God to show you what I've done in the world through my son, Jesus Christ, I did so you, my people, would know you could boldly in confidence and in confidence come to me. So here's why I'm, here's why I'm focused on this day and why I'm going to teach on it more. And even though you, everything I said, I bet everyone in this room says, yeah, I already know that. But here's what I want to tell you as a pastor. I meet with people all the time. And one of the things that we talk about sometimes is people's prayer life. And one thing I'm learning about myself that I struggle with and listen, to other people talk about their prayer lives is one thing that's hard for us is actually connecting to God by faith. Some people find it really easy to work a list, and it's like a habit, and they do it, and I'm all for good habits. Um, I embody some bad habits, and y'all can be gracious about that today. Um, but I'll offer good habits. Good, ha- habits are good Habits are real, and you better it's better to have good habits than bad habits. But something, there's something deeper than the habitual practice of prayer and work on our lists, and that's believing that the Father has invited me to draw near to Him. Now, when you start thinking about drawing near to the Father, there's some people that are like, well, of course, because God's a big, nice, granddaddy Santa Claus up in heaven, And he just wants anybody to come into his presence and he dulls out blessings because he's really generous and kind. That isn't the biblical picture of God at all. The reason you and I have bold and confident access into God's presence isn't because God is a celestial Santa Claus. It's because he sent his son to remove all the obstacles so we could come before his holy throne, which is now characterized by his grace his mercy, and his willingness to give us help. All right, so I want to do that today in the scriptures so that, uh, as it leads into more practical things, we'll enjoy prayer and recognize that God has genuinely invited us to draw near. I think drawing near to God by faith is sometimes the big thing we're skipping in prayer. Let me say that again. Just think about how weird that is. Drawing near to God by faith sometimes is the thing we're skipping over in prayer, which means we're throwing words at God or we're conceiving that God is far away and we're hoping that maybe he'll listen to us if we say it right or do it enough or try harder. And what I'm going to show you today from three different passages is the holy, triune, righteous, and perfect God has done everything necessary to say to anyone who believes in his son, I want you to come into my presence and I want you to have bold and boldness and confidence to draw near to me. I want to be close to you and I want you to be close to me. So that's the gospel of prayer. So we're going to look at it today. So let's begin in Luke chapter one. I want you to see that the beginning and the end of Luke's gospel was designed to give us a massive aha moment. So that's why it's how it's written. So let's look at it and let me pray first. Father, we draw near to you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to experience your presence today. Now, even as we look to your word, convince us again today from your word to us that you've invited us to draw near and that you are drawing near to us. Help us learn how to connect with you by faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to read kind of fast, and every now and then I'm going to be like, hey, mark that. And if you've got a pen, you can just like underline or put a little asterisk or something. Okay, so this is, this is the first story in Luke's gospel. The first four verses in Luke's gospel is Luke clearing his throat. He's basically saying, hey, I think you've all heard some of these stories. I've, been, I've done my own investigation, and so boom, I'm telling you some good news about Jesus. Boom, and then he flies into his first story. It's right here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, if you've been reading your Old Testament, and you see a couple who are God's holy people and there's barrenness, and they're advanced in years. You're like, oh, this sounds like the Abraham and Sarah story, and you're supposed to be like that. It's what you see is God is moving again for His people, just as He did through Abraham and Sarah when He brought about Isaac, right? Who was the special beloved son who almost had to be sacrificed, but he didn't have to be sacrificed. The whole story of the Bible works together as one big story that points to Jesus, and here it is again. Okay, so you got this elderly couple, and they can't have a child. Now, verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, that means he was in the temple, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, so here's the picture. First picture, first story in Luke's gospel, Zechariah the priest, it's, he's twice his... twice. His life, or once his, once his life, sorry, twice a year, his, his division would do this. Once in his life, he's going to have this privilege of standing there and offering the incense um, in the temple, okay? Just background information, this is the Tamid sacrifice. It was offered twice a day in the morning, roughly what we would call 9 a.m. In the afternoon, at roughly what we, the ninth hour, which would be like at 3 p.m., and that might sound familiar. We'll look at that comparison here in a minute, okay? So he's in there burning incense, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside as at the hour of incense. Does that sound familiar? Is, was, did anyone in this room teach Revelation 5 or Revelation 8 in your Revelation study? Any of y'all teach that? Well... If you remember Revelation 5 and 8, there's a strong association between the prayers of God's people and the incense that goes up into heaven, all right? And that's part of what was going on. At the Tamid sacrifice, they sacrificed a lamb, a perfect one-year-old lamb in the morning and burned incense, and the incense went up and the people of God were gathered, and the incense represented the prayers of God's people and the life of the lamb going up into Yahweh's presence, They did it again at the end of the day at 3 p.m. or the ninth hour. They sacrificed a one-year-old perfect, flawless lamb, okay? And uh, they offered incense. And so the incense went up with the smoke from the the lamb, the whole burnt offering, okay? And it, it represented the lamb is going up in our place, and the prayers of the saints are going up with the lamb. Does that make sense? So people in the first century would have understood that's the background here, so when Zechariah goes in to burn incense, he's probably doing it at 3 p.m. A lamb's being sacrificed, and incense is going up, representing the prayers of the people, and their prayers are going up with the lamb, the whole burnt offering, whose smoke is going up in the God's presence. So they're going up together. You got the picture? Okay. Now something wild happened. Verse 11. And there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That was a unique experience. All right, that's not every day. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Here's a little side note, okay? What we're seeing here is a major event in the history of redemption unfolding. This is about the birth of John the Baptist. That's the son who's going to, about to be announced and will be born, born of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Okay. And Gabriel is coming from heaven for the presence of God to tell Zechariah that God's plan, his redemptive plan, which has something as central as John the Baptist is going to happen in response to his prayers. Now, was John the Baptist God's plan? Was it going to happen? Absolutely. Was it connected to the prayer life of Zechariah and Elizabeth? It was. That's pretty wild. Okay, keep going. All right. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. That's being John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. and He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be full of the Holy Spirit. That sounds like the Samson story. Sounds like the life of the, the Nazarites, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That sounds like Malachi. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So help prepare a people for the Lord. That sounds like a lot of Isaiah and Malachi as well. So here's what Gabriel is saying to Zechariah. God's redemptive plan is moving forward as promised and it's crashing into your life, Zechariah. And, and God's plan crashing into your life is connected to your prayer life. That's pretty big, all right? But that's what, that's what the angel is telling Zechariah. God's, he's quoting all kinds of things. Zechariah had been like, oh my gosh, this is what God said through Malachi. This is what God said through Isaiah. And you're saying it's happening here and now? And answers to my prayers, yes, yes, yes. Now now we hit the problem. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Can you convince me? <laughs> um, I would like some evidence, please. So this is, this is probably the question of unbelief. For I'm an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. In other words, we've done the math and the science, <laughs> dear angel from heaven, <laughs> and we're pretty sure we're not able to do this. Which is interesting because the angel is saying God is answering your prayers and his focus is on his ability. But the angel is telling you what God's about to do. And that right there can help your prayer life quite a bit. Okay, but I'm going to keep moving because that's not the main point today. Verse 19, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. This is a key phrase. I stand in the presence of God. Prayer is about entering the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Now, this is super interesting. Okay? And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So God's bringing his sovereign plan to bear. is connected to Zechariah's prayers. But his unbelief and his disobedience can't stop it. That's good news. That's really good news. Okay, now look. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. Why were they waiting for Zechariah? To say it? Sorry. (laughs) That's all right. I think what, what Holly said is, he's supposed to announce the ironic blessing. He goes in and, and does his service in the temple. Remember, the incense going up represents the prayers of the people. The people are outside the temple, and they are praying. The incense represents their prayers, and after he does his responsibility, he, other priests are sacrificing the lamb. He's burning the incense off when he altar. When he comes out, he's supposed to lift his hands and utter the ironic blessing but he's mute and he can't speak. That's how the gospel of Luke begins. That's the very first story in the gospel of Luke. Now, just for a minute, before we read the the next passage down there, um, Zechariah was doing this act at the ninth hour. So let me read Luke 23. It's not printed for you, 44 to 46. This is Jesus on the cross. He's already prayed on, on the cross. He's already talked to the two, the, the two thieves on the cross. And in Luke 23, 44, Luke writes this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's the hour of the evening sacrifice of the second lamb where the incense would have been going up. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two at the ninth hour. At the hour that the lamb was sacrificed, at the hour when the prayers of God's people are supposed to get into God's presence, at that very moment, the the temple uh, veil, is curtain is torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said a prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Okay, so that's, that's toward the end of Luke's gospel. But now look down below. Remember, Zechariah goes in He's offering incense, representing the prayer of God's people. But when he comes out, he can't pronounce the blessing. It's the first story in Luke's gospel. Here's how Luke's gospel ends. After Jesus dies on the cross, at the ninth hour, the hour of incense, the hour of the sacrificial lamb. Then, of course, we know he's raised again on the third day. Here's how the gospel ends. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Do you see it? The blessing that Zechariah, because of unbelief, because he was mute, that he couldn't give at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is now lifting his hands and giving the blessing. He who died in the place of of the sinners and rose again, he lifts his hands and blessed them. And remember, the incense offering went up into God's presence, and the whole burnt offering went up into God's presence, and then what happens after Jesus lifts his hands and blesses them? Read it to me. What happens next? He ascends into heaven. All right, you see what's going on there? Okay, at the end, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple. That's where they are, blessing God. Here's here's Luke's gospel in the whole big picture from the first story to the last story. Okay, God's people are invited to draw near to God for God's blessing in Christ Jesus, who himself is the ultimate Lamb of God, who himself has ascended into God's presence. Does that make sense? So here's why that matters. When, when you pray connected to Jesus Christ, your prayers are like that incense going along with the sacrifice, and his sacrifice was perfect. Jesus has entered, he's ascended into heaven, and he's there, and you're welcome in the throne room of heaven because Jesus is there right he died for your sins your uh, the incense of your prayer life is welcomed into god's presence as well so that's just the first story okay any, any questions about that is it making sense you, that's so that you just quoted uh psalm 41 verse 2 okay psalm 141 verse 2 let me read it okay Um, I just moved that page and that's, I I wish I'd read that before what I just said. Psalm 141 verse two, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Yes. The good news is we have something better than our prayer life and, and, and something better. We have Jesus Christ ascending into heaven for us. So now in Christ, we can say, let my prayers come before you as incense, Right? Does that make sense? Absolutely. So Psalm 141 verse 2 is another parallel to this whole thing that we're looking at here in Luke's gospel. Does everyone understand it? You see what Luke's doing by beginning, showing you the mute priest who can't bless and ending with Jesus Christ, his hands raised. Jesus Christ died in the place of the wicked. Jesus Christ is the obedient son who was vindicated in his obedience. So when he raises his hands and blesses you, you're truly blessed. Right, and then he ascends into heaven and you can ascend with him. In the Bible, the main time to go to heaven isn't after you die. In the Bible, you can go to heaven right now. That's what you do when you pray. Because Jesus is there and you're invited to draw near to the throne in him. Not later. We already did it. When I prayed a little while ago, we went into heaven. That's how the Bible sees it. Does that make sense? We think of heaven as a future reality. Jesus already ascended to heaven, and you're already seated with Christ in heavenly places already, right? And you're invited to draw near to the throne in Christ already. Now I want to get to the boldness and the confidence, okay? So let's look at our next little passage, Um, and that's the one in Hebrews, okay? I'm going to read the verses up above. Now, Hebrews 3 and 4 is about entering the rest that God offers his people, okay? Hebrews 3 and 4 is about entering the rest that God offers his people, and the bottom line is you enter the rest through faith. The obedience that God's looking for to enter the rest that God offers is to trust him, is to believe that the rest is for you. It's God's gift for you, okay? So listen to what, uh, this is kind of the end of that section about entering into God's rest by faith. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that doesn't sound safe at all. I'm hearing about swords and nakedness and exposure. And here's how it's working in, in... Hebrews 3 and 4 as a whole, is the Word of God discombobulates you and helps you enter into the rest God promises, not through your own record and your own obedience, but you've got to trust somebody else. That's how it's functioning here, okay? So the Word of God will, will absolutely pull you apart, and no one can hide, and all of our faults are just laid bare before God. That's what God's doing, okay? Okay? so and that's going to lead to so in other words we can enter god's presence through confidence but not in ourselves okay now before we move on to the next part of the passage where's the first place in the bible where you see swords and nakedness in close proximity first place in the bible in the garden right after adam and eve rebelled god comes looking for them because they've rebelled and they're hiding from god oh no creatures hidden from his sight, but all are naked, and exposed. Those to whom was gift account. They're hiding from God because they're like three year olds when they break the lamp, right? You know, they're 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 hiding right by facing the corner, right? Um, and God comes pursuing them, and you know, God asks Adam the questions. He blames Eve, and at one point, God says, "Who told you you were naked?" Remember that? Okay, and then God deals with Adam. He passes the buck to Eve, who passes the buck to the serpent. And then here's what God does. God comes and condemns the serpent. And the first promise of the gospel is really a threat against the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, you will not win. There will be one born of a woman. He's going to crush your head. And and you'll wound him. But that's what's going to happen. That's Genesis 3.15. That's the first announcement that God's going to win through someone born of a woman. We know that ends up being his own son, Jesus Christ, okay? But move on from there. Then he goes and talks to Eve, and even the most natural and good things like childbearing are, gonna, are, are not going to work the way we want them to work all the time, a la Adam, I mean Abraham and Sarah and Zechariah and Elizabeth and all kinds of pain and misery and sorrow that's just woven into the creation order because of our rebellion. And then he goes back to Adam And then what does he say at the end of Genesis 3? Let me read it to you. After saying, who told you you were naked? Did you disobey me? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so Adam and Eve are now aware in their shame of their their nakedness because of their rebellion and their guilt. And then, what's the sword doing in Genesis three? What's why's the sword? Why's the cherubim there with a sword? That's right. Blocking access to God's presence, right? right. Keeping them out, okay? So I think Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 is alluding to all of that. There's another time that you have a sword show up. It's when Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land, the land of rest, and there's a sword that shows up, right? And Joshua says, whose side are you on? He's like, nope. Remember that? Right there's an angel brandishing a sword because the people of God are about to come into the Promised Land, into the plant, the, the place of rest, um, and uh, the whole army has to experience a little bit of nakedness because uh, there's a whole generation that wasn't circumcised. Very similar pattern, and they they obey God and then they go into the land, and that's what's happening here. Okay, the word of God strips them down and exposes all of their faults. There's no way I can think, oh, yeah, I can waltz into God's presence because I'm good enough. I'm faithful enough. I'm obedient enough. I deserve to be in God's presence today. That will never work. But I can go into God's presence with great confidence. And that's where he takes us. So Hebrews 4 keeps moving then. He just said, no creature is hidden. We're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That sounds scary. Since then... (laughs) We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. There's the ascension of Jesus again. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is, let us keep holding on to the things that we've been taught about Jesus. Right? We confess that he is the Son of God and our humanity, who lived the life we failed to live, who died in our place, who's entered into God's presence for us, right? Who's been raised again and then ascended. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so here's the, here's the underline, bottom line of this whole passage. Let us then with confidence draw near. Honestly, if you walk away with that today, that's it. That's it. There's the goal. <laughs> Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace the throne of god characterized now by grace towards us god's favor toward us in Christ Jesus that we may receive mercy look at that verb receive mercy and find grace to help when whenever you need it in time of need okay you see that okay because of what because of who Jesus is and what he's done and the perfection of his work, you and I can actually enter into God's presence. Draw near to him and draw near to him with boldness and confidence. I'm As a pastor, I'm convinced this is, the, this is close to the biggest hindrance of our prayer lives. I think a lot of times we feel like we're in a room by ourselves and we're throwing words at somebody who might be listening. And that is what prayer feels like a lot. Sometimes that's what prayer feels like. But by faith, what this is saying to us, God himself is saying, I want you to draw near to me. That's what prayer is. I want you to come close to me, and I want you to come with boldness and confidence in my son, who is the high priest I've chosen for you, and he's perfect. So God wants us to have perfect, bold confidence to come near to him. Does that make sense? Everybody got it? And I'm saying I think that's sometimes that's the that's the missing fulcrum of our prayer life. We've forgotten the gospel of prayer. That really and truly the king has invited us to draw near uh, with boldness and confidence. Um, and then, then what do you get out of that? Um, look at those verbs. Receive mercy and find grace. Right? God is giving mercy. God is granting grace. Find grace doesn't mean like an Easter egg hunt. Oh, is it under that bush? Is it under that bush? Is it behind that tree? It doesn't mean like work hard and beat other people to the purple egg, right? Discover grace. Receive mercy and Eureka! There's favor for me here. And why? Because I have profound needs and God has my, he is my help, right? So we're not, Creating a formula or a system to work our way into God's presence or trying harder or doing more. We're believing that Jesus Christ is perfect and we're invited into God's presence and not just invited in begrudgingly, but to come with bold confidence. Okay? All right? Now we got one more little passage. What time? How are we doing time wise? Awesome. Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. Thank you, Ingram. Okay. Now let's look at Ephesians 2. Okay? I don't like as a teacher, I don't like taking things out of context. It bothers me, but I'm just gonna keep plowing. Um, but but a big picture of what, what Paul is doing in the whole letter to the Ephesians is he's showing some Gentile Christians who have some relationships, some tense relationships with some Jewish Christians that God has a plan to renew the whole universe. It's right there in Ephesians 1, verse 10. Read it later if you want to. Um, And God's bringing heaven and earth together in Christ Jesus, and nobody can stop him. And that's the the revealed plan of God unfolding uh, before their eyes. And that's part of what's going on in the epistle to the Christians in Ephesus, okay? Well, then you get to chapter 2, Paul knows... I'm going to divide the room. That's going to be so hard, isn't it? All right? Paul Paul knows that over here, because we're in what's now Turkey, you're you're all weirdo Gentile Christians. You know who knows what you were doing last week before you met Jesus. It's probably pretty bad. But but y'all are the brand new. You're the brand new Gentile Christians. You didn't know God's ways. We had to spell the word covenant for y'all and explain what it meant. And y'all are new to this thing. And we're glad you're here. Um, but over here, you're the Jewish Christians. Y'all are the completed Jews. Y'all have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And you've known about God's covenants forever. And you know who Abraham is, thank goodness. And you can put Noah uh, in the right chronological order. Like you know Noah comes before Moses and that kind of stuff. we got to teach those people. So the bottom line is, these people culturally have been deeply shaped by Judaism. These people culturally have been deeply shaped by all kinds of crazy cultural, you fill in the blank. And now you're all one family in Christ Jesus. And Paul is working really hard to say, we're one family. We're one family. We're unified in Christ Jesus. One father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're on the same team. Come on. And so he's just working really hard to press that into God's people. But look at how he does it here. Okay. This is this is when it kind of gets going into that. Okay. Um, and I am on the wrong page. Okay. You Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, remember that, um, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. Boy, that's a whole lesson one day. Um, having no hope and without God in the world. Before you met Jesus, you were a bunch of lost pagans. That's what Paul just said. But not no more. That's what he's saying. Okay. Okay. Um, But now, listen to this language. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, now, you Gentiles, you're probably going to hear relational language, and it works. The Jewish Christians are like, oh, that sounds like temple language. Because the people drew near to Yahweh in the tabernacle of the temple through blood sacrifices. So these these guys, because they're so familiar with their Bible, they're picking those those uh, resonances up, and eventually you guys are going to learn them too. Okay, great, because y'all are the new Gentiles. Sorry, you know, just there's more tables over here. Okay, now, four. He Himself is our peace, who has made both of us one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what Paul's saying in the flesh of Jesus Christ. We're not Jew and Gentile separated, we're all one, one new family in Christ Jesus. Okay. He did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity, one new person in place of the two. So making peace. Now not just peace between us and God, but peace between us and one another. Okay. I know I'm flying, but that's all right. Um, let's see. Yeah. And, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, verse 16, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, you crazy Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, you Jews who already knew a lot of stuff. You see what he's doing? He preached peace to you, he pre- y'all, he preached peace to y'all, and he's bringing you together. And that's a, an allusion to Isaiah, but that's another day. Okay, um, okay. yeah, we're near. Verse 18. Ah, for through him, we both have access. The Greek word there is prosagoge. If you read the tabernacle and temple narratives of the Old Testament in the Greek translation, the Hebrew nouns and verbs related to prosagoge are all over the place. Access language. Because the people of God had access to Yahweh at the tabernacle through the priesthood and at the temple through the priesthood. And now what Paul's saying is, hey, you crazy Gentiles, you've been brought near. And you crazy Jews, you, you traditionalist Jews, you've been brought near. You're all one in Christ Jesus, but he's using temple language. And, and part of the imagery is like, if this pillar is part of the temple, and that pillar is part of the temple, you're part of the same temple, and you're only here because you're in Jesus. So you got to be one. you got to be connected and die to all the hostility. Okay, now... Just remember, we have access in one spirit to the Father. It's very Trinitarian. Through faith in Jesus, by one spirit, we have access to the Father. Wonderful. Verse 19 So then, you crazy Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're God's people. God wants you in his house. Can you talk to God? Oh, yes, you can talk to God. You live in his house. He's made you his very own people. You're members of the household of God. I don't have a membership more precious than that, do you? I hope you don't in your mind. There's no membership more precious than members of the household of God. You just can't be one, right? Members of the household of God, there's nothing more precious than that. Okay, now... This household, verse 20, now he uses architectural metaphors. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Why? Because they bear witness to Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The whole thing, he's, he's the, the primary cornerstone rock, the foundation that makes it work. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. If you didn't think I was right before, you got to admit it now. You're being, you're growing into, we are being, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, y'all are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You hear what he's saying here? Not only are you members of God's household so that you get to go and live with him, now he's saying God's making you his household. He wants to come and dwell with you. Now that sounds like the tabernacle and temple narratives just on steroids, because after they built the tabernacle, the glory cloud came down and shook the tabernacle like God is here. And after they built the temple, the glory cloud came down and shook it. And it was like, oh, the the kabo- the, kabo- the glory of God is here. And Paul just said that's true of you if you're in Christ Jesus. You're God's household. You live with God. And God has taken up residence in y'all, in us. Okay? So that's like close access. <laughs> right? So look what he does with it. Okay, so just, just note, that's the end of chapter 2, and he just said, You are God's temple, you are God's temple, you're becoming God's temple, right? That's what he just said. Now, 3 1 begins with this little phrase to Jokeren for this reason, okay? And he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of King Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, you know what he does? In 3, 2 through 13, Paul does a Robbie Holt. He just goes off on a crazy, you're like, what happened? Wasn't he talking about this over here? And all of a sudden, he's on a rabbit trail. Paul goes on a rabbit trail. So the next time I do it in a sermon, you can say, well, at least Paul did it too. Okay? So Paul goes on a rabbit trail. So he he starts saying, he's going to say, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But he goes on a rabbit trail and he goes, you know what? I just want to talk about something for a minute. I want to talk about my apostleship because my apostleship is about gathering the Gentiles into this new family in Christ Jesus. That's what God set me aside to do. And in the manifold wisdom of God, when people from different cultures and backgrounds live together in a family, it shouts a a message to the heavenlies. And that's what he does in that, that little aside, okay? That's his aside. And then he comes back. Look what he comes back to in verses 11, 12, and 13. This is the end of his aside. Remember, he was talking about the temple before he went on a rabbi, rob, rabbi rabbit trail. Okay, At the end of his rabbit trail, he comes back to his main idea. Okay, This was according to the eternal purpose, his, his apostleship to the Gentiles, that he's realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I say, hey, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. It's fine. It's for your glory. Okay. And then he picks up his thought again. For this reason. You see what he did? He said, don't forget you're a temple. Don't forget you have access to God. Don't forget that, you, that God's drawn near to you and he wants you to draw near to him and live together as one family in his presence, right? So he comes back to that and look what he says. Now he tells you why he said for this reason. Right. He comes back to it. For this reason, I pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And then look at the, verse six, the, the first word in verse 16 is the word that. The, the middle term, not to so that at verse 17, but in the middle you have a dash and a that. And then down the, at the end of verse 19, you have a that. And in the Greek text, these are three clauses that are henna clauses. That doesn't mean anything to most of you. But they are three clauses that show you the purpose for which Paul is praying. And so it breaks up his prayer into the main three things he's talking about, okay? And so here's what he says I'm praying, the first one, 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't that amazing? If you believe in Jesus, Christ tenant residence in you. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you'll be filled with power so that you'll live in the reality of Christ dwelling in you. So Paul's praying that things that he's already announced are real will become more profoundly real to us. Let me give you an example. If you believe in Jesus, are you forgiven for all your sin? Amen, you are. Do you ever have to kind of work that out in prayer with God? you know, like process it a little bit, like announce to my conscience, Lord, that I'm not guilty. Remind me that my sins are paid for because you say that it's completely dealt with. It's a reality. Jesus paid for my sins. I'm completely forgiven. There's no shame. There's no guilt, but I'm feeling a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. So can, I t- can we talk about that? And will you, will you anchor me through the spirit in this reality that I'm a fully forgiven person? Because Lord, I have people to forgive and if I forget that I'm forgiven, I'm probably going to bite their head off, and I don't want to bite their head off again. So I need you to take that reality you've announced to me. I need you to take deeper root in my heart so I'll live out of it. That's what Paul's doing here, right? He already thinks if you believe in Jesus, Christ is in you and you're in Christ. But he's praying that, that we'll tune into that reality in a more deep way. But, but just please, you have a pen, circle the word dwell. Circle the word dwell, okay? Now, this is all corporate language, by the way. It's not individual language, but it'll help you both in both ways. All right. That you, this is the second key, that, that you being rooted and grounded in love, that's something that's already happened. You're rooted in the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. You're grounded in the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and width, height and depth. Okay, so circle, breadth, length, height, and depth, like one circle around that whole thing, right? Those are dimensions. Don't do four circles, one big circle. Dimensionality. And what's interesting in the Greek texts, it kind of trails off here. And then Paul says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And there's the third that. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Please circle the word filled. Okay? Now, over here on the right of your paper, will you please write dwell down on that bottom corner toward the top a little bit of that, this little section right here? Write dwell up here and then dimensions in the middle. You probably have other things there, that's okay. Write it somewhere, turn it over. (laughs) And then filled at the bottom. Can you think of any stories where God said, Build this and I'll dwell among you? Uh, Let me describe the dimensions first. And after God said, If you build it, I'll dwell with you, build it to these dimensions. After God said, Build it, I'll dwell with you at these dimensions. And at the end of the story, he came and filled it. Does that sound familiar? That's the tabernacle narrative, that's the temple narrative. Go back and read both of them if you want to. But the tabernacle narrative, narrative, Exodus 25, 8, have them build a tent for me and I will dwell among them. Oh, by the way, here are the dimensions. And then that story, Exodus 40, God comes as glory cloud and he fills it. First Kings 8 and following, same thing, right? Earlier. Have them build this. I'm going to dwell in the midst of my people. David the warrior king can't build it. No, it needs to be the son of David. The temple building son of David is going to build uh, that house. And when this, the temple building son of David, uh, who's wise and is, and, and is deeply loved by the Lord, um, when he builds it, I'm going to dwell in the midst of my people. As long as you build it by these dimensions and the end of that, after Solomon prays, God comes and fills it, right? So why is Paul praying that, that Christ would dwell in you and you'll comprehend together these dimensions and God will fill you with all his fullness? Once again, Paul is God is saying, you're my temple. I've rescued you to be my tabernacle, I intend to dwell in your midst. And we have to tell ourselves this gospel of prayer when we're sitting by ourselves and we're praying and we feel like we're talking to someone who's far away. And God says, no, 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 you're my temple. I've come to live in you. I'm not far away. I live in you. Draw near to me. And when you're sitting in your room and you're praying and it feels like no one's listening and no one cares, you got to remember the gospel of prayer. Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven and you are invited to come to the very throne room of God and be in His very presence to receive mercy and to find grace and to get help in whenever you need it. right? And isn't that interesting that this gospel of prayer has told us in both directions? If you want to think about going to the heavenly throne room, you've got bold and confident access there in Christ Jesus who's ascended there. That's one trajectory. From here to there, bold, confident access, you can go right into God's presence. But if that doesn't work for you, you're God's temple. He's come to live inside you. He's very close already. Does that make sense? Why in the world does the Bible tell us the same thing over and over and over? It's really easy to live in our world as though God's a distant Grinch, passive, um, inattentive father. It's just really, it's, it's tempting to live in the world where I must take control of things. I must understand all things. I must have the resources in my hand. I must keep myself safe. I must keep my heart. I must get my agenda done. It's just easier to live in the world like that than to live by faith and to believe there's a very, very good God who invites you to come to his presence. And here's the thing. Under the myth of my control, I can change things that I don't want to be changed. In the gospel of prayer, I'm not in charge of who God is or what he does. But the good part is to be in his presence and entrust my plans and my heart and my hope to him. Now, when really bad things happen, uh, do, we, do we pray that, that uh, surgeons out west do really, really good work? Like if people have you know brain cancer? And things like that? Absolutely. As we go through these next five weeks, we're going to talk about the importance of asking God for specific things. We're going to talk about the usefulness of a prayer list and and like regular patterns and habits of praying. And we're going to, next time, we're going to talk about a good structure for prayer that Jesus teaches himself. All that stuff good, but don't skip this part. That what you really, what your heart longs for and what you need more than God to answer your prayers, you need to experience the promised presence of God. And God has invited you to come and know him and to be close to him. And that's better than anything he can give you because none of God's gifts are better than God. And you're invited to draw close to God and have intimate partnership with him. Uh, Here's, Here's the thing I said, I'll repeat it and get out of your way. Jesus ascended so we can draw near. Remember he lifted his hands and blessed us. God's blessings are ours in Christ. Jesus intercedes at the throne so we can draw near. Grace, mercy, and help are ours in Christ. In Christ Jesus and by the Spirit, we are God's temple where he draws near. Prayer is about connecting with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And please don't skip that. Let me pray. And then Ingram's going to, do you want me to, you're going to take over? I'm good. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you love us and you've made us your temple. Thank you that in your love and your wisdom, you've invited us to draw near to you. Help us enjoy this reality more and more by faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. Overcome our doubt and our disappointments. Redirect us so that we delight more and more in belonging to you and being in your presence. And teach us to pray, in Jesus' name, amen.